We're driven by the search for better. But when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search match with Indeed. Indeed is your matching and hiring platform with over 350 million global monthly visitors, according to Indeed data, and a matching engine that helps you find quality candidates fast. Ditch the busy work. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. Leveraging over 140 million qualifications and preferences every day, Indeed's matching engine is constantly learning from your preferences, so the more you use Indeed, the better it gets. Join more than 3.5 million businesses worldwide that use Indeed to hire great talent fast. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash BlueWire. Just go to Indeed.com slash BlueWire right now and support our show by saying that you heard about Indeed on this podcast. That's Indeed.com slash BlueWire. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. This podcast episode is brought to you by Coors Light. These days, everything is go, go, go. It's nonstop hustle all the time. Work, friends, family expect you to be on 24-7. Well, sometimes you just need to reach for a Coors Light because it's made to chill. Coors Light is cold lagered, cold filtered, and cold packaged. It's as crisp and refreshing as the Colorado Rockies. It is literally made to chill. Coors Light is the one I choose when I need to unwind. So when you want to hit reset, reach for the beer that's made to chill. Get Coors Light in the new look delivered straight to your door with Drizzly or Instacart. Celebrate responsibly. Coors Brewing Company, Golden, Colorado. This episode is brought to you by Decoy Wines of Sonoma, California. As you gather with family and friends this summer, experience the best of wine country with Decoy by Duckhorn. Winemaker Tyson Wolf spends every vintage focused on harvesting grapes and crafting wines from the finest vineyards. Whether it's our flagship Cabernet or crisp and refreshing Rosé, Decoy has just the wine for your discerning taste. Ask for us at your local wine shop or visit decoywines.com slash celebrate to locate our wines near you. Whether you're firing up the grill, hosting an alfresco get-together, or enjoying the warm summer nights, let Decoy by Duckhorn elevate your occasion. You are listening to Rotoviz Radio, a fantasy football podcast, with your host, Matthew Friedman. Hey everyone, I'm Matt Friedman, Matt at the Oracle of the Action Network and Rotoviz. Welcome to a special edition of Rotoviz Radio. Today we are talking about the Cleveland Browns. In between the NFL Combine and the draft, I'm interviewing beat reporters for every franchise, 32 teams, 32 beat writers, and 32 episodes. We are covering team needs, free agency, draft rumors, basically everything between now and day one of the draft. For this episode, I'm joined by Nate Ulrich, a Browns beat writer for the Akron Beacon Journal and Ohio.com. In this episode, he talks with us about the Browns' plans for their two first-round picks, the cast of supporting skill position players assembled by general manager John Dorsey, and what Hugh Jackson needs to do in 2018 to keep his job. Before we get to the guest, I'd like to remind you that you can get a listeners-only 30% discount to a Rotoviz NFL Pass through the NFL Podcast homepage, rotoviz.com slash podcast. Your subscription gives you unlimited access to all the premium NFL content on the site, and it supports the pod. All right, let's get to the guest. Welcome to the show, Nate Ulrich, a Browns beat writer for the Akron Beacon Journal and Ohio.com. You can follow him on Twitter at Nate Ulrich ABJ. Nate, thanks for taking the time to talk with us. No problem. Thanks for having me. The Browns, I, I don't know what to say. It's uh, It's been a very fascinating last two years. I mean, I guess last 20 years, really. But at this point, they have the number one pick, uh, which they earned the old-fashioned way. And then they also have the number four pick from the Texans via the trade last year, with Deshaun Watson, as of now, what is your sense of what the Browns are looking to do with those two picks? Well, you're talking about 20 years, and that's a great way to put it because they've been looking for that long-term answer at quarterback for 25 years. And obviously they drafted Tim Couch, number one overall, uh, you know, as an expansion team in 1999. But they haven't picked a quarterback higher than 22nd overall or 21st overall since 
since then. So a bunch of quarterbacks have come and gone, but they haven't really made that huge investment in the guy at the top of the draft. And that's exactly what they're expected to do this year. You know, you've got Sam Darnold, Josh Allen, Baker Mayfield, and Josh Rosen, four highly touted quarterbacks. None of them are perfect. They all have flaws, but there's something about each guy to get excited about. And the Browns are fully expected to pick whichever guy they think fits them the best, number one overall, and try to finally solve that quarterback quandary that they've had for two-plus decades. Do you have a uh, sense? Fourth, yeah, sorry, sorry, I was going to say, do you have a sense out of those four quarterbacks? I think it really comes down to Darnold or, <clears throat> Darnold or Allen, and I, I might be wrong on that. But between those two, do you have a sense of which way they're actually leaning? Well, my my belief is that Darnold is the favorite. You know, who really knows this time of year with so many smoke screens and so many lies? But I believe that Hugh Jackson prefers Darnold. Um, what's really the mystery to me is what does new GM John Dorsey want? And, you know, I think that's where Allen comes into play. People see the dots that are there to connect from Dorsey's history, being in green Bay with Brett Favre and Aaron Rodgers, and then drafting Patrick Mahomes with the Kansas city chiefs last year. Everybody looks at that common theme, that rocket arm, that huge arm. You know, the kind of arm that you think a guy ideally would have if you put him on Lake Erie and asked him to play football in December. So I think that a lot of people connect those dots, and a lot of people are connecting those dots and 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 thinking that's why Dorsey is intrigued by Allen. So I think those are really the, the main contenders. I, I do think that Baker Mayfield is somewhere – in that discussion, maybe it's just the periphery at this point. But I think that we know for a fact that Scott McLuhan, who is a trusted advisor of John Dorsey, he brought him on as a consultant, and it may lead to a full-time job eventually in Cleveland. We know that Scott McLuhan loves Baker Mayfield. I mean, going back to the fall, long before his involvement with the Browns, he's on the record saying that Baker Mayfield would be his guy in this class. And, you know, I was at the Senior Bowl with John Dorsey, and John Dorsey was pressed about Baker Mayfield's uh, character and his attitude, and John Dorsey really defended him repeatedly. And uh, I thought that was interesting, too. So I think that there is something to be said for Baker Mayfield being in the minds of the Browns, but, uh, you know, I would be really surprised if he were the pick. Um but I do think that there are people in the building, and we know Scott McLuhan is, is, is one of them and certainly a prominent one who is an advocate for him. Um, but, but as we sit here a couple of weeks out from the draft, I do believe Darnold is the favorite, uh, and Allen is the main threat there at number one to Darnold. And then at number four, I mean, the, the, the sense that, you know, if you look at mock drafts, people are putting Saquon Barkley in that number four pick. The thing is, the team has Carlos Hyde, they have Duke Johnson. No team that uh, John Dorsey has worked for has ever drafted a running back in the first round during his employment. Do you think Saquon Barkley is the guy they're really looking for there? He could be. Um, I think that he is that special of a player. Um, you know, your his the history that you mentioned with Dorsey is a great point. Also, you know, when you think about that history, he was just with the Chiefs last year when they drafted Kareem Hunt in the third round, and he comes out and leads the league in rushing as a rookie. Um, so he knows firsthand that you can find really good running backs, you know, after that first round. And this is supposed to be a deep class here, you know. Um, you know, you've got guys from LSU, Ronald Jones from USC, you know, some of those guys in the second tier, there's Sony Rochelle, there's Nick Chubb, uh, there's Rashad Penny. Um, you know, there's there's a handful of guys in that second tier, and you look at the Browns sitting at the top of the second round, at the 33rd and 35th overall picks, it's logical to think that they could fill that quarterback, or I'm sorry, fill that running back need 
early in that second round instead of taking Barkley early. If that's the case, it leaves you wondering, well, who's who's there at four? Who would make sense if they do take that quarterback at number one like we all expect them to? Who's that non-quarterback that they would take at four? And I just keep coming back to Bradley Chubb, the defensive end from NC State. Um, I know for a fact the Browns really think highly of him. They think, um, you know, they look at him and think that's a really good player, a player who has a chance to be the best, you know, non-quarterback in the draft. Obviously, Barkley is right there in the conversation. That It's really, I think, in, in the minds of most people, down to those two, is the best non-quarterback in this draft. So, you know, they drafted Miles Garrett number one overall last year. They have Emmanuel Agba, who was the 32nd overall pick in 2016. So on paper, defensive end isn't a big need for them. Um, but I think that most NFL teams operate under the uh, theory that you cannot have enough good pass rushers. And we always hear about a copycat league, and you saw how dominant Philadelphia ended up being um, with the ability to rush the passer. Uh, So I think that Bradley Chubb is definitely uh, in the conversation, if not the favorite, uh, at number four. And that's if he's available, right? I mean, that's a thing about Barkley and Chubb. You know, the Browns, the Browns could conceivably have their pick of the best non-quarterback in the draft at number four. The Giants are the team to watch, of course. You know, number two, are the Giants going to pick Barkley or Chubb? And then the Browns would get the other guy there available to them at four. Um, you know, but if, if, if the Giants pick a quarterback or trade down and the team that trades up to two takes a quarterback, then one, two, and three are quarterbacks because we think the Jets are going to pick a quarterback at three. The Browns are going to pick a quarterback at one. Then, yeah, you, you could almost have it set up where it's like two drafts for the Browns. You take the quarterback, and then you get all the best or, you know, all the non-quarterbacks uh, to choose from. And if that's the case, mm. man, what a good problem to have because Barkley is such a sensational prospect. But – Chubb is really good too, and he plays, I think, the second most position, second most important position in the NFL. You know, after quarterback, I think edge rusher is is right up there in terms of importance. And John Dorsey shares the same belief. He's on the record saying it's quarterback and then uh, defensive end. So, um, you know, running back's not in his top five. You know, it's quarterback, defensive end, cornerback, uh, left tackle, and receiver. Those are his the five positions that he thinks he, are the most valuable in the NFL, and the you know the the ones that are most important when it comes to winning. So, you know, running back, hey, Saquon Barkley, like I said, sensational prospect, but the position he plays might give the the uh, edge to Chubb. You know, if it comes down to those two at number four. Mm-hmm. So you mentioned John Dorsey there and the way that he views the team. Uh, in terms of positional importance, uh, receiver being one of the top five positions that he views as being important. Uh, and they recently traded for Jarvis Landry. Uh, they also brought in Tyrod Taylor. Uh, with the passing game and the, the players that they have assembled there now with Josh Gordon and, and Corey Coleman presumably playing outside Landry in the slot, does the team feel as if it has the pieces in place to support Taylor this year and then presumably a quarterback of the future for the year after that? I think so. I mean, obviously coming off 0-16, you know, they wanted to change things as, as drastically as they could. And John Dorsey obviously has. I mean, he's made seven trades since the start of the new league year. Um, he's acquired 13 veteran players. But they wanted to get older, more experienced. They were the, the youngest team in the league last year. Um, they wanted to revamp the quarterback room, and they did. Last year, they headed into the season with zero zero wins in the regular season in that quarterback room. The Sean Kaiser, Cody Kessler, Kevin Hogan had no wins in the NFL, and they still have no wins in the NFL. After going 0-16, they have been wiped out completely. John Dorsey traded all three of those guys. Um, he traded for Tyrod Taylor, like you mentioned, who really is the perfect – fit for this team because he's a guy who doesn't turn the ball over much. He's a guy who can win some games, uh, get you back to respectability if he stays healthy. Um, But if you look at his contract, 
he's only, uh, you know, locked in for one more season. And it's $16 million, so you're paying him decent. But that gives you that flexibility. So, really, he is set up. He doesn't want to call himself a bridge quarterback. Hugh Jackson doesn't want to call Taylor a bridge quarterback. But he is set up to be exactly that. Um, he's set up to get the Browns back to respectability and then pass the torch to that guy that they're expected to take number one overall here on April 26th. Mm -hmm. Um, But they do think that they have some playmakers around him now. You know, the receiving core, you know, when you add Jarvis Landry to the mix, a three-time Pro Bowl slot receiver who, you know, led the league in receptions last year, that's a huge upgrade for them. Um, Now, this is the, the, the caveat. If Josh Gordon is not able to stay available, focused, and motivated, and win his history, that's always a question. If he's not able to do those things, then it's just going to be average at best receiving core. But if he can do those things, and he can really start to return to form that we saw a few years ago, and he's still only 26, and he is that rare of an athlete where I think it is possible. I'm never saying he's going to be that all-pro, you know, from 2013 who led the league in receiving yards again. I don't know if it will be to that level, but if he can come close, man, they could be a dynamic receiving core. Corey Coleman, it's a make-or-break year. Um, He has suffered a broken right hand in each of his first two seasons, and he's been a disappointment. He's on thin ice with the team. On and off the field, he's been a disappointment. So I really do think it's make-or-break time for him. Um, But if those guys can again, stay healthy and available and, you know, off the commissioner suspended list uh, for Gordon, then I think you're talking about um, a pretty promising receiving core. But that's just on paper. They've got to go out and do it, and they've got to be able to be reliable, you know. So um, when it comes to running back, you mentioned Carlos Hyde and Duke Johnson. I think that can be a good tandem. Um, I think they will draft someone too. Um, Tight end. Uh, David Njoku um, had an inconsistent rookie season. He needs to become uh, more reliable with his hands, but I think he has a chance to be uh, a pretty good playmaker in this league. Um, So, you know, obviously the offensive line, when it comes to supporting the quarterback that you mentioned, you know, whether it's Taylor, the guy of the future, that's a huge deal. And the biggest blow that they had all offseason was losing Joe Thomas, 10-time Pro Bowl left tackle who retired. Do you think that the team is going to look, as you mentioned there, just losing Joe Thomas, the team has acquired Donald Stevenson, Chris Hubbard, but it's really unknown if either of those guys can replace Thomas on the blind side. Do you think the team, with one of its higher draft picks, right, it has uh, three picks in the second round, do you think that it might be looking for a left tackle in the draft? Yeah, definitely. They want to draft somebody to add to a competition. What they... What they've done here on the offensive line is they they have the center, J.C. Treader and the two guards, Joel Batonio and Kevin Zeitler, returning. Sean Coleman was a 2016 third-round pick who played left tackle at Auburn. Last year was his first time as a starter in the NFL, and he started all 16 games at right tackle. So now their plan is to shift him to the left side and let him compete with a guy named Donald Stevenson, a, a veteran who has start starting experience on both, you know, both right and left tackle. And they want Coleman to compete with Stevenson, but they also want to draft the guy and throw him into that competition. So that's going to be really the competition. One of the competitions to watch probably the main one on offense, you know, because we're used to quarterback competitions in Cleveland every year, but they've already declared Tyrod Taylor is going to enter this 2018 season as a starter we really want this rookie who we're going to draft again he's expected to be drafted number one overall but we really want that guy to watch and learn from the sideline let Tyrod Taylor do it this year so there's not a whole lot of like huge position battles which is interesting kind of because they were known 16 team but if you look around left tackle is definitely going to be one of the more interesting ones and it's really going to be Sean Coleman. And he, he, by the way, always wanted to keep playing left tackle. And right tackle is a big adjustment for him. He's always said more comfortable on the left side, would really cherish the opportunity to play left if Joe were to retire. And so here it is. He's got his chance. 
But yeah, there's going to be a rookie. Uh, I, they really, they've said, you know, Hugh Jackson and John Dorsey have both talked about, you know, let's see what we can get in the draft to add to that mix. So, um, you know, it's not going to be a guy, you know, with one of their first round. Well, if they stay at number four. Now, here's the thing. If they, if they We didn't mention this earlier, but they very well could trade down from number four. Um, you know, and if that happens, then it opens up all kinds of possibilities. And then, you know, depending on where they move and who's there and who they like, could they pick a tackle in a trade down scenario? Sure. But I, I would lean toward them being more likely to pick one, you know, second round, like you mentioned. Um, or later. Um, but I, I think that you can definitely expect them to, to use a draft pick on the left tackle and throw them into kind of a Royal rumble there over there on the left side and training camp and see who emerges because, you know, the, the, the right tackle spot um, is, is going to be filled by Chris Hubbard who played for Todd Haley in Pittsburgh and they signed him solely for that purpose. So that's what frees up Sean Coleman to move to the left and compete for that job. You mentioned that there aren't many position battles on this team, uh, at least as it seems right now, uh, which obviously is a little bit weird considering that it is an 0-16 team. But this team actually, with the additions that they've made and then the, the draft selections that they have, it seems as if it's a team that really is improving and does have some potential for a number of years after this. Uh, just in terms of the sense within the organization, is there – like, I mean, I don't know if I want to use the word hope, but like, is there like some hope for the future? Like, do people have the sense that this year is going to be different than the two previous seasons and many of the years before that? Yeah, they do. I, I think it's, it's interesting because were they way too young last year? Yeah. Were they, were they talented enough? No. Um, but when you make all the moves that John Dorsey has already, you're already more experienced, you're older, you're more talented. Um, and that's even before you get to this draft when you have some really, really nice picks. You have five picks in the top 64. Um, so, yeah, I think you can. I think it's reasonable to expect improvement finally. And, you know, I, I think when you look at the Browns roster, I mean, this, this, just to kind of quickly go over it, I talked about the offensive line, left tackle, there's a job. Tyra Taylor is a starting quarterback. Carlos Hyde and Duke Johnson, you know, that's the starting tandem, um, regardless who uh, who goes out there first. You know, Duke, Duke has not traditionally been a starter per se, but he plays, you know, a huge role. He's, he was the offensive, the best offensive player last year throughout the season from start to finish. Um, you know, and that's, that has something to do with the future Hall of Famer and Joe Thomas being hurt in the seventh game. But Duke Johnson was voted by the local writer, local Browns writers as the, the team MVP, the team player of the year. So, I mean, that's the kind of season he had, even with all the losing. Um, tight end David Njoku is going to be thrust into that starting role this year. Receiver, you got with the guys we talked about, Josh Gordon, Corey Coleman, Jarvis Landry. I mean, that, that really, I mean, that's, that's your group right there. And on defense, you know, there's some starting jobs. There'll be some battles in the secondary uh, at cornerback. That'll be a, that'll be a highly contested position. And then on the defensive line, but linebackers are are pretty much, you know, you can pencil those guys. Those are pretty much set. And uh, you know, a lot of the defensive line positions are, and certainly the ends. You know, unless they, if they draft Bradley Chubb, then you know that would change. But yeah, I mean, there's not a ton of like mystery about who your main guys are. Um, so I think that the, the the key, and it's it it's a simplification, but it's also true, is you know, what do you have a quarterback? Because there are people in that building who believe if they had, you know, a, a really good quarterback, you put them on that roster, even the, the one that went 0 16 last year, and you're you're 500 team or uh, slightly better. I mean, that's, you know, Aaron Rodgers, whoever you, you can play the hypothetical, but put in a good quarterback and it's a totally different story. And so with Tyrod Taylor, you certainly don't have one of the league's elite, but you have a guy who has, you know, a winning record in the league, 22 and 21 took the bills to the playoffs last year, ended a 17 year drought um, and doesn't turn it over much. He had six turnovers last year. 
That's interceptions and fumbles. The Browns, meanwhile, finished last in the league in turnover def- differential at minus 28. It was the worst turnover, tu- turnover differential since San Diego in 2000. That team went 1-15. and So if you want to look for reasons for, for 0-16, right at the top of the list is that turnover differential, and a lot of it had to do with the quarterback play and you know Deshaun Kaiser leading the league with 22 interceptions and uh, also losing six fumbles um, you know so you know part of that's having a rookie quarterback and you know but um, you know that that that's the way they set it up he obviously was not ready they had no wins in the quarterback room and he was a starter from day one he started 15 of the games Kevin Hogan started the other one and the rest is history Hey, sports fans, football season's here, and it's time to get in on the action with MyBookie. MyBookie is the industry-leading sports betting website that offers real Vegas odds on football, baseball, and all your favorite sporting events. You can take a side, the total, or even fantasy points props. MyBookie lets you bet online and win big. Did the game already kick off? Don't sweat it. MyBookie has in-game live betting on every major league and event even esports. There's no better time to join MyBookie than today. Go to MyBookie to open an account and start winning. Use promo code CHAMPION when you register for your account and get a 100% sign-up bonus up to $1,000 on your first deposit. Bet today. Visit MyBookie's website or call 844-866-2387. That's 844-866-2387. Check them out today and use promo code CHAMPION for a 100% bonus. Terms and conditions apply for entertainment purposes only. Void where prohibited. You mentioned there defensively that they've very much revamped the secondary, which makes sense considering that they really were, uh, by most measures, a a bottom 10, maybe even a bottom 5 unit. Uh, But defensively, the front 7, they were actually pretty good against the run. What are the thoughts for the defense this year in terms of how it can perform? Well... They needed. John Dorsey said they needed to get faster in the secondary. Um, and you know what's interesting is, I think a lot of people uh, will look at uh, Jamar Taylor and Jason McCourty last year and earlier in the early in the year they were getting pretty good reviews from Pro Football Focus and a lot of people say, you know, they're pretty good. They had pretty good corners. But when you, when you take a deeper look as the season wore on, they did not have a good cornerback group. Um, they they allowed uh, the highest uh, op- opponent passer rating in the league, highest completion percentage in the league. Um, they were much better against the run, like you mentioned, made a big leap, and that was a, a a top priority for Greg Williams. But they got shredded <laughs> against the pass, and that's why you saw them add so many cornerbacks um, this off season. And, and actually, what Another thing they did, which is significant, we know that on paper, you know, barring barring draft, uh, maybe the drafting of a Minka Fitzpatrick or something like that, um, we know the starting safeties. I mean, so they traded for Demarius Randall. Um, they sent Deshaun Kaiser to the Green Bay Packers for Randall. The team swapped fourth and fifth round picks. Randall played cornerback for the last three years in Green Bay, but he played free safety at Arizona State. Elliot Wolf, who's now the assistant GM of the Browns, and Alonzo Highsmith, who's now the vice president of player personnel with the Browns, were both in Green Bay during Randall's entire tenure there, and they are the right-hand men of John Dorsey. So they obviously think free safety is the right spot for him, and the team obviously traded for him, and he is you know, in position to be the starting free safety which allows Greg Williams to move Jabril Peppers to strong safety. Last year, Williams played Peppers at free safety because he said he had nobody who was a better option at that position. And as the year went on, Hugh Jackson and Greg Williams conceded that, you know, this was not the right position for Jabril Jabril Peppers. He, He needed to play strong safety, but... They had him at free safety out of necessity. Not only did they have him free safety, Greg Williams had him playing very deep, like 20 to 25 yards off the ball. Browns fans went nuts. You know, they looked at the all 22. They tweeted the photos. They had gifts going. I mean, it was the whole 
there was like one of the main criticisms of Greg Williams, his usage of real peppers. Well, now they can play Jabril Peppers closer to the ball where he feels more comfortable and where they think he's going to excel. So we'll see how that works out. Um, but, you know, it's certainly, I think, um, is a more natural fit for him. So those are the safeties. And cornerback, it's wide open now. Jason McCourty, who I mentioned earlier, he's been traded. Uh, Jamar Taylor is still there. Brian Body Calhoun is still there. He was like the third corner last year. Um uh, you know, so if you're in free agency, they signed TJ Carey, um, Terrence Mitchell, and EJ Gaines, uh, all of whom have starting experience. Uh, Carey, obviously, his contract says he was signed to start. But it's kind of, I think it's going to be interesting to see really, you know, how that shakes out. Like, out of that group of the five guys I just mentioned, the three free agent acquisitions and the two holdovers, Jamar Taylor and Brianne Body Calhoun, who are going to be your top three guys? Um, you know, I think after Carey, it's 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 going to be an interesting position battle. And, and again, you know, we, we haven't mentioned this guy yet, so I'll throw him in there. I do think that Ohio State cornerback Denzel Ward, I mentioned Minka Fitzpatrick earlier, but I, I think that the other defensive back who you could see the Browns possibly end up with in the draft. I wouldn't consider him as likely as, as you know, the guys we talked about earlier, Chubb and Barkley at four, but you know, Denzel Ward uh, from Ohio state who tied with two other players for the best 40 yard dash at the combine and, you know, visited the Browns uh, just a few days ago um, during their local pro day. He's from Northeast Ohio, went to Nordonia high school. Uh, I think he could be, uh, an option, you know, maybe even a tr- maybe even in a trade down scenario, uh, if, if they trade down but don't move f- too far back. So, uh, you know, they they might not be done at at a corner when it comes to, um, you know, early in the draft. But I do think that even if they don't take somebody early, that you know that's a position where they're going to add. You know, so that could be another second round position if you put odds on it maybe that would be the most likely route that they would go um to address corner but yeah i don't think they're done by any stretch at corner but they certainly have done a lot already all right nate this has been a lot of fun two final questions uh the first everyone is focusing on what the team might do with the first and the fourth pick are there any prospects who stand out as potential guys who could fit with what the browns want to do on day two or maybe even day three well, I'm sure there are, but I'm not going to have <laughs> the names of all the diamond and the rough guys on the top of my head. Um, you know, but what's interesting is if you look at um, some of the official visits um, that they've had, guys who, you know, have kind of surfaced, who are, if you look at, the draft analysts and who they project and all that kind of stuff. There are some guys who are, you know, later round guys. Um, you, normally when you think of these top 30 visits that teams can have to the team headquarters, you think of the big names and the Browns have had in all the quarterbacks we talked about. Um, you know, they've had Denzel Ward, like I mentioned earlier, you know, they're going to have, Lamar Jackson, who's a quarterback we didn't talk about, they're going to have him in. Um, but, you know, they've had some other guys in this week – or not this week, I'm sorry. Uh, Lamar Jackson is going to be this week. But they've had some other guys in um, who aren't as well-known. And, you know, those are the guys who they, they kind of uh, pique your interest when they have a guy like that in because, you know – He's not a household name. He's not one of the guys they're going to invest a top pick in, so there's some other reason why they're doing their extra homework on him. I'll give you a couple names. Oregon cornerback Arian Springs, Central Arkansas cornerback Tremont Smith. These are later-round guys. Um, and, you know, when those names pop up and you talk about later-round guys or, you know, guys of day two, day three, um, I think those are some day three guys who they're obviously doing extra homework on. And we just talked about, they're not done at cornerback. So um, those would be a couple of names I would give you. Um, but we know they're doing some, some thorough research with. That's really interesting there. 
Uh, final question here. The Browns went, obviously, 0-16 last year. Uh, I believe Hugh Jackson is yet to jump into Lake Erie. Uh, what does he need to do in this upcoming season uh, in terms of job security? Is there sort of like a number of games, like a game, a win threshold he needs to hit in order to keep his job, or is it more just about kind of uh, progress? Like how how is he going to be evaluated this upcoming season? Well... My guess is that they need to win because he no longer has the excuses that he's had the last two years. He's gone 1-15, he's gone 0-16, 1-31. People think it's a miracle that he still has the job, and I think he is very fortunate, no doubt about it. When you see guys like Mike Malarkey take the Titans to the playoffs and get fired, and Hugh Jackson survives 0-16, you scratch your head. But he got the benefit of the doubt from Jimmy and D has on the owners because they bought the argument that he did not have enough talent to have a fair chance at winning. And now John Dorsey has gone out and got all those veterans we've talked about. And he's got an a quarterback who's won elsewhere. And now those excuses or reasons, however you want to look at it, aren't there. So it's on Hugh now. If he can't win with the improvements made to the roster, with the experience and age and talent added, it's on him. There's no scapegoat. Um, he's changed almost his entire coaching staff in two years. Like, you know, he had Ray Horton as defensive coordinator the first year, fired him. Greg Williams came aboard. He's added, added Todd Haley as his offensive coordinator. He's changed quarterbacks coaches. He's changed running back coaches. Um, offensive line coaches, um, you know, like I said, the entire defensive staff switched out with Greg Williams coming aboard. Now he has a new special teams coordinator for the first time. You know, Chris Tabor went to Chicago after a seven-year run in Cleveland. So the, the players are new. The coaching staffs have been totally revamped. Everybody around Hugh basically has changed. So he is run out of, you know, reasons to point to other than himself if the losing continues at, a, at, a, at an alarming rate. So I think he's got to win. And that sounds so obvious, but it hasn't been the, the requirement thus far. Um, here's what I would guess. And, you know, talking to Jimmy and D has them at the owners meetings and asked, and, you know, they were asked, Hey, you know, every, there's that perception that he was on thin ice. So he might not even make it through the whole year. If you guys are start off, the, you know, rough, and they wouldn't, you know, pinpoint anything. But Jimmy Haslam basically just said, we have full confidence in Hugh Jackson. And he, you know, he dealt with a very uh, difficult set of circumstances the last couple of years. So we're ready to give him this opportunity. So um, with that vague answer in mind, all I can do is guess. And my guess would be that you need to start kind of approaching 500 and, that that's such a huge leap from 16 but again, this is a different team. It is a different team with all the moves that have been made. So, you know, if if, if you're in that six to eight win range, you know, I th I I think that if you're the Haslam's, you're probably feeling good about your decision to keep you around. And I think anything short of that, you got a new GM in here, and there's no doubt that he has a list in his mind of coaches throughout the league who he's worked with, who he's liked, who he likes. And if this thing doesn't go well enough, you let John Dorsey pick his guy. All right, Nate, this was fantastic. Thank you for all of your insight, and we hope to talk with you again as we get closer to the season. Hey, I appreciate it. Any time. Thanks a lot. just finished speaking with Nate Ulrich, a Browns beat writer for the Akron Beacon Journal and Ohio.com. We covered a lot. Here are some of the thoughts I have on our conversation. This is the episode that I have been looking forward to the most all offseason. The draft really comes down to what the Browns decide to do at number one and then also at number four. Um, very rare for a team to have control of two very crucial picks like this in the same draft. 
in at number one, <clears throat> really, it comes down to Sam Darnold and Josh Allen. Uh, I've been pretty vocal that I think it should be Darnold instead of Allen. If you look at Darnold, um, and right now he is the the Vegas favorite for the uh, for the number one pick. But if you look at Darnold, in terms of what he accomplished at USC, his completion percentage, his adjusted yards per attempt, uh, his improvement while he was there, and then also his age and his mobility and arm strength, but his his age, all of those things, those are why, those are the reasons he should be number one. The age is incredibly significant. In the entire history of the NFL, there has never been a quarterback who has been 20 years old when he's been drafted. Darnold is going to be the first. He is literally the youngest professional passing prospect in the history of the league. Over the past 25 years, only six first-round quarterbacks have finished their rookie campaigns at the age of 21. In 93, Drew Bledsoe. He was the first overall pick. In 2001, Michael Vick. Again, the number one pick. 2005, Alex Smith. Again, the number one pick. 2009, Matt Stafford. Again, the number one pick. That year, you also had Josh Freeman, the 17th pick. He... He doesn't really fit in with the group for multiple reasons. Not accurate. Anyway, 2015, Jameis Winston, number one pick. Darnold is clearly in a cohort because of his age and then also because of what he accomplished in college. He's in a cohort with guys who historically have been selected at the top of the draft. That doesn't mean it's going to happen. And just because you know, Darnold quote unquote checks a lot of the boxes that, that doesn't necessarily mean on its own that he deserves to be the number one pick, right? Quarterback evaluation is really hard, but he has a lot of the same predictive and key characteristics of guys who have been selected number one overall and who actually had or will have pretty good careers, right? Bledsoe, Vic, Smith, Stafford, all of those guys were in the league for over a decade, right? Starters for over a decade. I mean, none of them has won a championship, but I don't think that's really the measure of whether a quarterback is or was a good pick or a good player, right? All of those guys returned value, even though they were selected number one overall. Jameis Winston is on that same trajectory, right? Sam Darnold, I think, is a very safe number one pick. I think he has a very high floor. Josh Allen, uh, he has a floor that is in the basement, right? And that on its own isn't, well, actually, no, that on its own is enough, I think, probably to disqualify him from the number one pick because that that is so much draft capital to invest in an asset with a very low floor that it, I think it's risky to make an investment like that. But Josh Allen, I mean... People are going to love him, you know, because of the arm strength, the athleticism. He gets compared to Roethlisberger and, and, and Carson Wentz. And I should say just, I think that makes no sense. Like, if you look at them, just like you look at their actual bodies, fine. He has the measurables of someone like Carson Wentz and Roethlisberger, right? But not every big-bodied quarterback from a small program turns into an NFL star, right? Paxton Lynch, for instance, is the example of why you can't just say, oh, like, he had great production at a small school. It's going to translate. And the thing is, Allen didn't even have great production at a small school, right? He looks like a prototypical passer in terms of his body, but he doesn't have the accuracy, right? That is why he is not comparable to Roethlisberger and Wentz. He does not have the accuracy. Roethlisberger completed 63.3, 63.3, and 69.1% of his passes in his three seasons as a starter. Carson Wentz, 63.7 and 62.5% in his two seasons as a starter. Allen, 49% in his first season, 56% in his second season, and 56.3% in his third season. 
He never hit 60%. Here is, for me, the real kick in the crotch. 49% in that first year. That was at junior college. This is a guy who could not complete 50% of his passes at junior college. He didn't have great talent around him at junior college and then Wyoming. But, of course, he was playing against guys who are not going to be in the NFL, right? At Wyoming, in his first season there as a starter, it's it's possible, maybe even probable, that he was actually playing with some guys who were still better than his opponents, right? Some of those guys actually have ended up in the NFL. So he, he theoretically even should have had an edge there, just in terms of his guys, his supporting cast, being better than the defenders he was playing against. It, it didn't matter, right? He didn't produce. He's athletic. He's got the big arm. He completed just 54% of his passes in his career. He is Jake Locker, right? The classic boomer bust guy, right? The, the Vegas odds are that Darnold is the number one guy selected. He's the favorite right now. I think it's actually like at best a coin flip. And I think Allen is actually the front runner. Since December, there have been reports by scouts, you know, people in the industry who are familiar with Dorsey, that they fully expect him to select Allen. And the odds of him selecting Allen have only gotten higher over the past four months, right? He had a good performance at the Senior Bowl, and way too much emphasis is placed on that one event. But that is when all of the NFL decision makers are transitioning from focusing on NFL to focusing on the guys coming out of college. So it's, you know, it's like primacy bias. Like that is, that is their introduction, you know, their firsthand introduction to these players. Way too much emphasis is placed on that one event. Allen had a good performance there. He had a good performance at the combine. Good athletic measurables. No question. Good athlete. Great arm strength. And then of course his pro day. Yeah. Huge arm, right? Made all the passes. It should be very clear to everyone that there is a massive difference between being accurate and showing off a strong arm in a scripted pro day and throwing with the required anticipation and touch and accuracy in a game setting when the pollo- when, when the packet the <laughs> when the pocket is collapsing, you know, and you need to go through your various progressions and reads. There is a huge difference. Which is more predictive, a pro day or years of performance against live competition? I think the pro day means basically nothing. I would expect someone like Allen to destroy a pro day. I think it would have been more concerning if he hadn't, obviously. But the fact that he did well in the pro day, I think that means nothing. Right? I think the number one pick should be Darnold. It probably will be Allen. And in the mock draft I have at Fantasy Labs, of course, I have Allen going number one overall. And so much of that has to do with John Dorsey. And here's the thing. Dorsey has had success with project quarterbacks. He's almost like the anti-Elway. Like, Elway hasn't had success at all with drafting quarterbacks. And he tends to draft guys who are kind of similar. Like Paxton Lynch is basically another version of Brock Osweiler. He struck out on both of those guys. Dorsey has a type of quarterback that he likes. And he has a very high hit rate on that type of quarterback. Right? Dorsey has had success in shooting for raw upside. Right? Dorsey's first year with the Packers was 1991. He was a scout. He was part of the team that scouted Brett Favre. When the Packers traded for him, traded a first rounder for him after he had had a horrible rookie season and a pretty subpar college career, just in terms of the metrics, right? That worked out like that. The fact that that worked out, I think, is basically determined the rest of Dorsey's career in terms of how he evaluates quarterbacks, because for years after that, the Packers made a habit of drafting project quarterbacks, sitting them on the bench, developing them, and then either using them or trading them. Ty Detmer, Mark Brunel, 
Matt Hasselbeck, right? All of those guys, late round picks, project quarterbacks, developed on the bench and turned into NFL assets. And then, of course, Aaron Rodgers. And then last year with the Chiefs, Patrick Mahomes, right? A project passer, but maybe the guy with the most raw upside out of last year's quarterbacks. Dorsey believes, just in terms of what he's done, Dorsey seems to believe in shooting for raw upside. Allen has the highest upside, the most potential out of any quarterback in the class. Darnold has a lower ceiling, right? Darnold has a higher chance of hitting his ceiling. I'd say Allen has a diminished chance of hitting his upside, right? But his upside, his overall upside is higher, right? Darnold has a much higher floor, and that might be why he should be selected. Like his combination of high floor and his enhanced his enhanced odds of hitting his ceiling, I think, give him the nod as the number one overall pick or why he should be. But I think what matters for Dorsey is raw potential. And that's what Allen has. Dorsey has had success with project passers, scouting guys to be developed on the bench. And that's the plan for whoever they draft. Given that that is the plan, Allen is most likely the pick. So let's assume that quarterbacks go one, two, and three. What do the Browns do at number four? Right. Allen goes number one, Darnold number two, Rosen number three. What do the Browns do at number four? In the dream world scenario, they draft Baker Mayfield. <laughs> and they they let Mayfield and Allen go at it. And Mayfield would win that competition. That's not what they're going to do, though. I think it comes down to Barkley versus Chubb. Quentin Nelson would be interesting because he really is maybe one of the best players in the draft. And that's just not like best non-quarterback in the draft. In terms of raw ability, he might be the best player in the draft. But as Nate mentioned, the Browns are pretty set at guard. They have Batonio. They have Zettler. They don't really have much need for a guard, at least immediately. So although Nelson would maybe be the best pick, they're probably not going to take him. Nate's insight into how Dorsey values right now, how he values running backs, is really interesting. It's making me change my mind. I have mocked Barkley to the Browns. Right now in the mock draft I have at Fantasy Labs, I have Barkley number four to the Browns. And I have that knowing that Dorsey has historically avoided running backs in the first round. But my sense was that Barkley is a generational running back. Really, the last the last running back, I'd say the best running back prospect of the last decade. I think that's fair. Based on his age, his production, his versatility, his skill as a receiver, I think he's the best running back prospect of the last decade. It's convenient that I'm outside of the Adrian Peterson window in making that statement. And so my sense was that because of how good he is and because of the hype surrounding him, Dorsey might make an exception. But if Dorsey, even now, is saying that quarterback is most important, defensive end, cornerback, left tackle, wide receiver, those are the positions that matter, I, I, don't, I don't know. I don't see him drafting Barkley. If he's saying that running back is not a top five position for him, then I don't see him drafting Barkley number four, which is really interesting. That changes a lot for the, the landscape of the draft. And so if it's not Barkley, I think it ends up being Chubb. Or maybe they trade down, which would be, I, I think, probably a, a good move. Acquire some pieces. I think it'd be great if they traded down. But let's say it's Chubb. I think that works too. The team signed Carlos Hyde, and it has Duke Johnson. I mean, Barkley has so much going for him. But, you know, the big things, he's a big-bodied guy, and he's a great receiver. With Hyde and Johnson... The Browns, they have those attributes already covered. Hyde is a big-bodied guy, and Duke Johnson is one of the best receiving backs in the league. That's not to say that those two guys can replicate what Barkley would add to the team, but they might be able to do it enough. They might be able to do it well enough to justify that the team 
draft another position with that pick. And as Nate mentioned, Dorsey was with the Chiefs when they drafted Kareem Hunt, a third rounder who went on to have great success last year. Right, And this is another great draft, just like last year's draft, another great draft for acquiring a running back, a potential starting running back on day two or in the middle rounds. Right, I think, I think that, that if Dorsey is looking for a running back, that is what Dorsey will look to do, to draft a guy later on. And adding Chubb, that would be a great move. This defense is starting to take shape. It could be a good unit in two years. Maybe even this year. EJ Gaines was good with the Bills last year. When he wasn't injured, he was good. Right? 86.6 PFF grade. A, a top 15 cornerback. Kerry and Bodie Calhoun, they were also pretty good. Right? Peppers moving to strong safety is big for him. Shifting Randall to free safety, I think, is a good move. That secondary is going to be much improved. In the front seven last year, that was a pretty decent unit when it came to stopping the run. You have Garrett there. If you added Chubb, you still have Collins. You have Nasib. You have Ogba. Like that is a pretty that is a pretty good unit that now could start to get after the quarterback. That defense, I think, is going to end up being pretty decent. And it's not just the defense that has improved. The supporting cast on offense, I think it's actually pretty good. Right, we talked about it. Josh Gordon, Corey Coleman. They weren't at Baylor at the same time, but man, that Baylor duo, you know, those two guys on the outside could be pretty impressive. I'm not even going to talk about Jeff Janis. Okay. Like I'm not, I'm not going to go there because if I start talking about Jeff Janis, my head might explode. You have Jarvis Landry in the middle of the field. I think that was a great addition. I think he could be very good for Tyrod Taylor this year. And then whoever it is that they add Josh Allen. Josh Allen in the future, and David Njoku, he's the guy who really interests me. He led the team in receiving touchdowns last year. It is very rare for rookie tight ends to do that, much less 21-year-old rookie tight ends. Njoku is a unicorn. He really has massive upside, right? He turned 21 in July, so he was a young player in college. But he did very well, very well in college at Miami. Eight touchdowns in 2016. He had 11.2 yards after the catch, which was first among draft-eligible tight ends. Very productive. And here's the thing. 21-year-old tight ends, like as rookies, those guys end up having fantastic careers in general. Like at a minimum, they have a lot of upside. From the last 20 years, here are the 10 tight ends with the most draft capital to play as 21-year-old rookies. Kellen Winslow in 2004, picks number 6. Eh, next guy, Eric Ebron. Pick 10th, 2014. I still think that could work out. Tony Gonzalez in 97 was the 13th pick. Todd Heap was the 31st pick in 2001. Rob Gronkowski the 42nd pick in 2010, Max Williams, 55th pick in 2015. His career has been derailed by injuries. Martellus Bennett, the 61st pick in 2008. Jason Witten, 69th pick in 2003. Jermichael Finley, 91st pick in 2008. He had some good years, but, you know, injuries. And then the last guy, Aaron Hernandez, picked 113th in 2010. Would have been selected higher if not for failing a drug test at the Combine. That is a really good group. And here's the thing. Although that group <coughs> that group as a whole has had a very good career trajectory, as rookies, that group really underperformed. And Joku did better than most of those guys did in their rookie seasons. He has a lot of upside. So here's the thing. With Gordon and Coleman and Landry and Unjoku and then Carlos Hyde and Duke Johnson, that's a great supporting cast. Like, I would be scared to bet against Josh Allen succeeding if the Browns drafted him because he will get to sit on the bench for a year. He will have 
those players around him whenever he finally gets to play. John Dorsey seems to have some sort of, I don't know, Oracle-like eye for finding project quarterbacks who actually pan out. Oh, and then, of course, you know, Allen will get the quote-unquote benefit of quarterback guru Hugh Jackson. I don't know if Hugh is actually good with young quarterbacks or not. He has the reputation for it. I don't know where this reputation came from. Right? He thought A.J. McCarron was something special. He wanted to trade away a lot to get him. Sashi Brown fortunately ensured that that didn't happen. You know, and as much as John Dorsey has trashed his predecessor, he's probably thankful that Sashi ensured McCarron would not be on the Browns. McCarron had almost no interest on the open market this offseason, right? Hugh vastly overvalued him. You know, Dorsey has done some, I think, some pretty good things since taking over. But last year, Sashi gave Hugh Jackson a team that should have won some games, at least four games. Hugh's incompetence was why the team went 0-16. His incompetence, I believe, is why Sashi Brown is no longer there. It's also probably why the team, in part, went 1-15 the year before that. But in slightly different circumstances, it was a total rebuild in 2016. 2017, the team should have won some games. I don't know if Hugh will actually be good for Allen on the bench. And I don't know if he's actually good for the team. I think the team will improve. The crazy thing is that Hugh will get credit for that. But I don't think he deserves the credit. The credit should go to Sashi Brown for stacking the deck in the Browns' favor for the future, and to John Dorsey for doing a good job with the hand that Sashi dealt him. I think the Browns are actually going to be pretty decent this year and in the future. It it feels dirty to say, to say that, right? I think they can make the playoffs this next year. That sounds uh, incredible, right? It sounds unbelievable. I think it could happen if things fall right, right? The Look at the Dolphins years ago when they went 1-15. The next year, they were 11 and 5. You know, they brought in a new, you know, veteran game managing quarterback, kind of changed a lot of the configuration of the roster, looked to get tougher, had a defense that was on the rise. You see similar things here, right? It probably won't happen, but the Browns really could make the playoffs this year. Even if that doesn't happen, I think they will be much better. I think there will be progress. Even if that happens, though, that doesn't mean that Hugh Jackson will have done really much, if anything, right. I think a lot of the credit will go to will go to him. It should go to Sashi and John Dorsey. And uh, Dorsey will get credit. Sashi won't get any of it. But whatever happens in the draft, a lot of it will be because Sashi Brown made some pretty good moves over the last couple of years. And uh, he's putting the ball, he's teeing it up for Dorsey. You know, if Dorsey just has this solid swing on it, it will be a home run. And, uh, you know, the guy who set everything up probably won't get credit. But, you know, the Browns, they could they could be good. That's going to do it for this Browns-focused special edition of Rotoviz Radio. Be sure to check out the episodes for all the other teams on Rotoviz and the podcast feed. I'm Matt Friedman, Matt F. The Oracle. Thanks for tuning in. Thank you for listening to this special edition of Rotoviz Radio, the flagship Rotoviz podcast. Special thanks to Hassan Rahim, the producer for this episode, and to Colm Kelly, the assistant executive producer for the podcast channel. Please review the show on iTunes under the Rotoviz Radio feed. Contact us via email, rotovizradio gmail.com. We'd love to hear what you think, and follow us on Twitter at Rotoviz Radio. And remember, you can always support the show by subscribing to Rotoviz at a 30% discount through the NFL podcast homepage, rotoviz.com slash podcast. This episode is brought to you by Decoy Wines of Sonoma, California. As you gather with family and friends this summer, experience the best of wine country with Decoy by Duckhorn. 
Winemaker Tyson Wolf spends every vintage focused on harvesting grapes and crafting wines from the finest vineyards. Whether it's our flagship Cabernet or crisp and refreshing Rosé, Decoy has just the wine for your discerning taste. Ask for us at your local wine shop or visit decoywines.com slash celebrate to locate our wines near you. Whether you're firing up the grill, hosting an alfresco get-together, or enjoying the warm summer nights, let Decoy by Duckhorn elevate your occasion. This episode is brought to you by Decoy Wines of Sonoma, California. As you gather with family and friends this summer, experience the best of wine country with Decoy by Duckhorn. Winemaker Tyson Wolf spends every vintage focused on harvesting grapes and crafting wines from the finest vineyards. Whether it's our flagship Cabernet or crisp and refreshing Rosé, Decoy has just the wine for your discerning taste. Ask for us at your local wine shop or visit decoywines.com slash celebrate to locate our wines near you. Whether you're firing up the grill, hosting an alfresco get-together, or enjoying the warm summer nights, let Decoy by Duckhorn elevate your occasion. Sugar Ray Leonard, Roberto Duran. Marvelous Marvin Hagler and Thomas Hearns. Legends, whose four-way rivalry defined one of the greatest eras in boxing history. Relive their decade of dominance in the new Showtime sports documentary, The Kings, a four-part series premiering Sunday, June 6th, only on Showtime.